It is the year 189, the 10th year of the Emperor Commodus. These are uneasy years. Even the senators of Rome feel uncertain about the future. But unknown to them, a man from North Africa, a native of Libya, has come to this city. His name is Victor. This is Libya in North Africa. To the east is Egypt. To the west, Tunisia and Algeria. And this was once the city of Leptis Magna, one of the great cities of the Roman Empire. Many years ago, people from Libya played a critical role in the beginning and the growth of the Christian church. First, in the moments before the crucifixion of Jesus. Then, a short time later, changing the direction of the church from being exclusively Jewish to reaching the wider world. And again, in the second century, guiding the Christian community at a time of difficulty in the city of Rome. is a bloodthirsty ruler, even by ancient Roman standards. <laughs> he likes to appear with the weapons and armor of a gladiator. The Romans are scandalized. Later generations will say he was a madman, a cruel tyrant. But in the year 189, nobody dares to say a thing like that. Under the reign of Commodus's father, the emperor Marcus Aurelius, the Christians who refused to worship the gods of Rome were persecuted. Strangely enough, the emperor Commodus, cruel as he was, did not make them a special target. But many of them were still prisoners in the mines on the island of Sardinia. To be sent as slaves to these mines was regarded as a living death. How could Victor the new Christian bishop care for his people suffering in this awful place. And how did it happen that Victor, who was a Berber from North Africa, became the leader of the Christians in Rome? What is the backstory? The story behind the story. At the time of Victor, the land of Libya was proud of two principal cities. In the west was Leptis Magna, where most of the people spoke Latin. In the east was Cyrene, where most of the people spoke Greek. There were also the indigenous Berber languages of North Africa. Victor may have come from Leptis. He would certainly have needed to speak Latin as Bishop of Rome. In the year 193, about four years after his arrival, a new emperor came to power, Septimius Severus. And like Victor, he too was from Libya, from Leptis Magna. The new emperor was proud of his Libyan heritage, 
and most of the magnificent buildings we can see in Leptis are from his reign. The story of Cyrene takes us back many more centuries, and strangely enough, to the ancient Greek island of Thera, now called Santorini. Around 630 years before the birth of Jesus Christ, the citizens of Thera were suffering. After several years of drought, the island was gripped by famine, and still the population was increasing. Their leaders made a decision. Some of the people must leave and go south to the shores of Africa, to the land we now call Libya. Their leader would be a man called Battus, which in Greek means stammerer, because as a child he had a speech impediment. But in the Libyan language of that time, the word Battus meant king, which is exactly what he became. The colony he founded in Libya became known as Kirinaiki, and his capital city as Kairini. In English, we usually say Cyrenaica and Cyrene. The settlers continued to worship the old gods and goddesses of ancient Greece, but they discovered that some of the gods worshipped locally in their new home were similar enough to be regarded as the same deities under different names. One of the Greek gods was Apollo, the god of music, poetry, the sun, and sunlight. And like several of the Greek gods, Apollo was also known for his many lovers. According to the Greek poet Pindar, one day Apollo saw a girl, the daughter of a local king in Greece. He fell in love with her, made her one of his lovers, and took her to North Africa. Her name was Cyrene, and the Greeks believed she became a nymph, a spirit who lived in springs of water and streams. This was the myth behind the city founded by Battus. Today, all that is left are these ruins near the modern-day town of Shahat. The city of Cyrene certainly had an abundant water supply, and the region of Cyrenaica was very fertile. The Greek historian Herodotus describes the fertility of the beautiful farmland. The territory of Cyrene has three distinct harvest seasons. First, the crops of the regions near the coast ripen and are ready for harvest. When these crops have been collected, those of the hill country, the middle region beyond the coast, are ready for harvesting. Then, after the crops of the middle region have been brought in, the highest inland area ripens and is ready. And so, just when the first crops have been eaten and drunk, the last ones are ready to harvest. So the harvesting season for the Cyrenians goes on for eight months. But while the inhabitants of this territory did keep themselves busy with harvesting the fruit of their land, they were also busy in imitating the immorality of their god, Apollo. They believed that he smiled on their promiscuity and sexuality of every kind. 
Nymphs, like the mythological Cyrene, were known not only for their beauty, but also for their strong sexual allure and desire. And this, too, became significant for the town that bore her name. They even thought their gods had given them a special gift. It was a vegetable called Sylphium. The plant was valued so highly in Cyrene that the city celebrated it with images like this on their coins. The leaves of Sylphium could be eaten like cabbage, and the stem could be pickled, but the special thing was the sap that could be used as a drug. Applied externally or taken internally, Sylphium seems to have been effective in treating a wide range of medical problems. But taken by a pregnant woman, it could cause an abortion. For the people of Cyrene, this seemed like a good thing. They could be sexual without bearing children, promiscuous without consequence. Although it grew plentifully where they were, Apparently, it would grow nowhere else, and other people wanted it. Soon, the Cyrenians were trading this drug across the Mediterranean Sea. It seems ironic and sad that in a place so valued for its fertility, the people celebrated infertility and a form of abortion, destroying human life. The Greeks lost control of the Mediterranean. The Republic of Rome grew in power. And in 74 BC, the Romans annexed Libya. Meanwhile, there was another story in Libya that was very different. The worship of the one true God, the God of Abraham. As the centuries went by, the city of Cyrene became the home for a minority of Jews. For them, abortion was a terrible sin, and idolatry of any kind was dreadfully wrong. The best way for them was just to keep to themselves. They could conduct business that did not dishonor God by breaking his commands. And within their own community, they could pray, eat food that was clean in their religion, and observe the Sabbath and the holy days of their faith. Josephus, a Jewish historian who lived in Rome and who had access to the archives of the Roman government, later copied a letter that was originally written by the administration of Caesar Augustus shortly before the time of Christ to protect the Jews in Libya and their rights to send money to the Jerusalem temple. But they did more than send money. They would also go on pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate religious holidays, especially the Passover feast. By road, traveling on foot, this was a journey of a month or more. But by boat, it took just a few days, so long as the weather cooperated. Around the year 33, a man named Simon made this journey from Cyrene, along with his sons, Alexander and Rufus. And no doubt they planned to stay in Jerusalem for some time. Simon would have purified himself before coming to the temple. And he made sure not to touch anything unclean, such as anything dead or the blood from anything dead. And he brought the right kind of currency to buy a perfect lamb for sacrifice. Like Abraham and like Moses before him, Simon understood his need 
for a sacrifice to be offered to God. He must atone for his sin. As he walked the streets of Jerusalem, he was jostled back and forth by the passers-by. Merchants sold their wares, children ran about, and Roman soldiers watched the crowds milling about. But up ahead, there was a commotion. Simon and his sons pressed forward through the crowd, and what they saw was heartbreaking and sickening. It was a man with a crown of thorns that had been beaten into his skull, and the raw wounds of a Roman scourging weeping blood through his clothes. He was struggling to carry a heavy wooden beam that would be part of the cross that he would be nailed to. Suddenly, the man stumbled. He lay on the ground in the midst of the crowd, unable to lift his burden and stand. Roman soldiers ruling over Judea, just as they ruled over Libya, had the power to force anyone to work for them and they picked Simon. He was forced to carry the cross for Jesus, who was now too weak to lift it after he was tortured. In the Gospel of Mark, the earliest gospel to be written, it says, a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. Why does Mark mention Simon by name? And why did he mention his sons, Alexander and Rufus? Most scholars believe that Mark wrote his gospel primarily for the early Christian church in the city of Rome, and that the members of that church would have known them. When Paul wrote his famous letter to the church in Rome, in chapter 16, verse 13, he sends his greetings to Rufus. It is very possible this was the same Rufus from Libya who later reached Rome. Mark is also saying something else. These three men, Simon, Alexander, and Rufus, were almost certainly eyewitnesses to the death of Jesus a few hours later when he was crucified. In that case, Mark was using their names as eyewitnesses. The crucifixion and death of Jesus is real history. That is important. The crucifixion of Jesus is also mentioned by the Roman writer, Tacitus, in the annals of Imperial Rome. Fifty days after the crucifixion of Jesus, 47 days after his resurrection, the power of God was poured out on the disciples. We count it as the first day in the life of the church, the community of the followers of Christ. The first day when the good news about Jesus' death and resurrection was proclaimed in public. The event is described in the Bible, in the book of Acts, which was written by a doctor named Luke. In chapter 2, verse 10, it tells us that this event was witnessed by people from parts of Libya near Cyrene. How remarkable. These Libyans visiting Jerusalem heard a speech from the Apostle Peter, one of the disciples of Jesus. This is what Peter told the Libyans and all the others. Listen to this. 
Jesus of Nazareth, was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Now, what's interesting here is the response of the crowd. Peter was not ridiculed for claiming that Jesus had done miracles, wonders, and signs. It was not questioned that Jesus had been put to death on the cross. It was also not ridiculed or questioned when Peter said that God raised Jesus from the dead. What was the response of this audience? Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Libyan Christians continued to participate in God's story in the book of Acts. After Stephen, a follower of Jesus, was stoned to death, the church was persecuted and scattered. Christians seeking safety went as far as Phoenicia, which was Lebanon, and to the island of Cyprus, and to Antioch in Syria. But these Christians were all Jewish, and they shared the news about Jesus only with other Jews. Then something happened that would change history. And it was the Jewish Christians from Libya who helped to make it happen. Men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. So, this is the backstory, the story behind the story. Simon, a Libyan, carried the cross of Jesus part of the way to the place where Jesus was crucified, and his sons are mentioned in the Bible. Libyans were present in Jerusalem at the birth of the Christian church, and Libyans helped to plant the Christian faith in Syrian Antioch, which for centuries became one of the most important centers of the faith. But some of the Libyan Christians must have returned to their own country, for in Libya itself there was a Christian church that grew in strength and gave rise to some outstanding leaders. One of these was the Bishop Victor. As Victor came into Rome, he knew that Christians were not popular, and the imperial government suspected them of disloyalty. He knew that 125 years earlier, the Christians had been blamed for the fire that destroyed much of the city, and many of them had been killed in revenge. 
But the problem ran much deeper than that. From the time of the Emperor Augustus in the first century, some Roman emperors were regarded as semi-divine, not in the sense of God Almighty, but as having some spark or aspect of divinity. In Libya, at Leptis Magna, after the death of Augustus, a temple was dedicated to the goddess Roma and the divine emperor. In Rome and across the empire, the Christians would pray to the one true God to bless the emperor. But to burn incense to the spirit of the emperor was impossible for them. The emperor was not divine. Already in North Africa, some Christian men and women had been executed for their refusal. While Victor was in Rome, a number of Christians were enslaved in the mines on the island of Sardinia. Slavery in the mines was a, a fate worse than death, and it seemed that nothing could be done for them. But unlikely as it was, help was on the way from the emperor's own court. Hyacinthus was a servant, either a slave or freedman, of the emperor. And he had been responsible for the upbringing of a young woman named Marcia. She had become the concubine of the Emperor Commodus himself. And Hyacinthus was also a presbyter, a Christian pastor. Marcia began to understand the Christian ways, and she felt sorry for the prisoners who were suffering because of their belief in Christ. The Christians described her as one who loves God. Whether she actually became a Christian is not known, but she was a voice on behalf of the persecuted. Marcia summoned Victor to visit her. Victor was able to give her a list of names of these Christian prisoners in the mines. And Marcia was successful in persuading the Emperor Commodus to command their release. Hyacinthus was sent to Sardinia to secure their freedom. I think Hyacinthus must have been delighted seeing his fellow Christians set free from those awful minds. Commodus remained a bloodthirsty and maniacal ruler to the end. But perhaps from the influence of Marcia and Hyacinthus, he actually became more tolerant of the Christians than the emperor before him. Then, on December the 31st, in the year 192, Commodus wanted to parade in front of the Roman people as a gladiator, instead of appearing from the palace in his purple robes. Marcia and three of his advisers tried to persuade him not to demean his position as emperor. In return for this advice, Commodus sentenced them all to death. Quickly, they conspired together 
and arranged for his assassination the same day. His successor, the Emperor Pertinax, ruled for only three months in the year 193 before he was assassinated by the Praetorian Guard. Power lay in the hands of the guards, and they were willing to sell the Emperor's title to the highest bidder. Didius Julianus, a very wealthy senator, bought the position of emperor. By his order, Marcia was killed. But he himself was assassinated only nine weeks after buying the emperorship. Finally, power went to Septimius Severus, a fine military leader, and he became a great emperor. Severus was also of North African origin from Leptis Magna in Libya. So extraordinary as it may seem, at this time, both the Christian Bishop of Rome and the Roman Emperor were from North Africa, from Libya, and quite possibly from the same city. All through this turbulent period, the influence of Victor leading the church in Rome was felt far beyond Italy. The Christians were still being persecuted, and Victor felt he had to do something to keep the church as strong as possible and united. But what could he do? One thing he believed concerned the date in the calendar when Christians celebrate Easter, the day Christ rose from the dead. Jesus and his disciples were all Jews and used the Jewish lunar calendar. The churches in Asia continued this tradition in commemorating the dates of the crucifixion and resurrection, starting on the 14th day of the Jewish month of Nisan, regardless of the day of the week it happened to be. But the churches in Rome and the rest of the Roman Empire commemorated the crucifixion on the nearest Friday following and the resurrection on the following Sunday. Victor believed that the churches in Asia should change their tradition and come into line with everyone else. When they refused, Victor responded with excommunication, putting them out of fellowship with other Christians. The attempt was misguided. Irenaeus, the Bishop of Lyon in Gaul, who was a great theologian, recognized the mistake at once. Irenaeus wrote to Victor. The disagreement here is not just about the day, but also the very character of the fast itself. Some think they should fast for one day, some for two, others for more. Even so, in the past, all of them lived at peace with each other. And we also live at peace. The very differences in the fast only serve to demonstrate our unity of faith. Never was this issue made the basis for putting anyone out. The whole church was at peace, both those who observed the day and those who did not. Irenaeus was right. 
Apparently, Victor did not see the difference between doctrines that are essential to the faith and how we express that faith where there is room for different traditions. He was being legalistic. Also, Christian leadership should not be by forcing our own traditions on others. Now, Victor made another attempt to strengthen the church, and this time it concerned the language we should use in public prayer and church meetings. Let me explain what it was about. In the days of the Roman Empire, the language used in the Eastern Mediterranean area, including Egypt, was Greek, and it was the language of the New Testament. In Italy and the Western Mediterranean area, the language of the people was Latin. And it was the official language of the Roman state. In Rome itself, in the mid-first century, educated people could speak and read both languages, Latin and Greek. So when Paul wrote his letter to the church in Rome, he wrote in Greek. But by the end of the second century, Victor knew that in his time, many people in the Western Empire, including much of North Africa, did not understand Greek. And yet the church was still using Greek in reading scripture and in prayer. Victor decided to send out instructions that prayers in the church in Rome and the West should be said in Latin, the daily language of ordinary people. It didn't happen all at once, but it was a good start. Victor had done the right thing. And this time, he had seen the difference between understanding the Word of God, which is essential, and the languages we read it in, which can be different. On this matter, Victor was right. God wants us to read the Bible and pray to him in words we understand. On the day of Pentecost, when the power of God was poured out on the church in Jerusalem, God, by a miracle, caused the disciples of Jesus to speak about his glory in many different languages. God does not insist on only one language in prayer. When we pray, God understands us. Whatever language we speak, after all, God is God. He understands everything. In Scripture, He preserves His message through all generations. When it is translated into another language, He can guide the translators to communicate His Word into the hearts of every nation on earth. I wonder... Did Victor ever think about what Simon of Cyrene had done for Jesus over 150 years earlier? We can definitely see a parallel. Simon of Cyrene left his home in Libya and went to Jerusalem, where he had the privilege of carrying the cross of Jesus part of the way. It changed his life. A hundred and fifty years later, Victor was called to leave Libya and go to Rome, where he had the privilege of leading and strengthening the Christian community. If it should so happen that we are called 
to share in the sufferings of our Christian brothers and sisters for the name of Jesus. May we be found with the same strength and obedience to God that we see in these two men from Libya. <laughs>